I feel a little... Well, welcome to Drill Trains of Thought. This is Nick Hayden, a.k.a. the Munchkin Mayor of Oz. And this is Timothy Deal, a.k.a. Jesus. <laughs> okay. Wow, okay. I'm so not, I... I <laughs> I'm not trying to be sacrilegious or anything, even though we were just, like, introduced from the heavens so, or something. <laughs> so that explains all the bread you brought over tonight. Yeah. Okay. Um, been meaning to get rid of it. <laughs> so I was in a play once. I, I I don't like to act, except apparently in three movies some guy cast me in. But when I was sixth grade, I was Munchkin Mayor, and I, I really resisted. But I, it was fun. Did you speak with like a squeaky guy voice? I, that was probably my normal voice at the time. Oh, I was sixth yeah. grade. <laughs> <laughs> that that makes sense. For whatever reason, when I was at Taylor Fort Wayne and was in the, the drama club thing, that they would have us do various things for chapel services or special events that were going on and for whatever reason I got cast as Jesus like at least three different times so there was a number of people at Taylor Fort Wayne that could have been Jesus that's pretty that, no, that's they had true. the beard and the big hair that is very true <laughs> but apparently none of them really wanted to act oh well so they're lost yeah but I had a, I had a whole shirt that I wore each time too my white t-shirt my Jesus shirt nice but... <laughs> well that that is an appropriate name for such a grand entrance. I agree. So, welcome. Yeah, welcome. So this is our the grand interest because this is our 20th episode. This is also celebrating our first year of being in podcasting. Yay! We Yay! made it this yeah, far. We're actually actually very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Our uh, first... Tim has lots of gray hairs now. Yeah, I'm balding pretty soon <laughs> from long nights of editing. and. But no, um, our first episode came out on September 24th, 2010. At the time, I was still at film school, and so we were recording over Skype. And we had never, I don't think I had used Skype before that. Oh, really? Well, I think we had had a practice Oh, time. we did have a practice time to make sure this sound would go. And that we knew kind of what we were doing. Of course, we also didn't sort of know what we were doing. If you go back and listen to that episode, my sound quality is not really as good as it should have been, considering I have a much newer computer than Nick does. Yeah, apparently my, my microphone just works awesome. Yeah, although we recorded the commentaries on on my computer, and at least some of them came out pretty well. So, but you'll hear more about that later. So when yeah, and so this is the twenty second we're actually recording, so almost a year to the date. Yeah, pretty close. Pretty close. I mean, so. to the release, the twenty fourth. Yeah, so right. within a week of. So, so yeah, more than you ever actually want to know about the the ongoings of. Uh, Behind, what was happening here? Behind the scenes of derailed trains. Of yeah, we had a big party before we started filming here or recording here. We yeah. had punch and some. There's some music upstairs. A lot of people sleeping on my couch now. Yeah, we we still have to kick it strong bed out at some point. He was partying pretty yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty hard. For yeah. it was the chocolate techno. And, and I'm afraid you guys just missed Stuart Lim. I mean, <sighs> we really thought we were gonna get him on here. He, he but... had a he had a lampshade on his head. It was pretty awesome. It was. I didn't know he could cut loose like that. No, I was, I think he was drugged. That could be. Oh no, he was doing some sleep de deprivation experiment with the Lem Institute. I think it had been two weeks. <laughs> I can't imagine his wife approved of that. I don't think he needs his wife approval. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I suppose fatherhood hasn't mellowed him that much. So, 
Well, this episode's done completely different. Um, we're just go this. The theme of the episode is to kind of add extra little bits to our previous conversation. So it's we'll be going through all our old podcasts and revisiting all our old friends. And you know how the saying goes: uh, "Work of art is never completely finished." You you just kind of come to a stopping place, and most of the time you don't get a chance to go back and tweak or add little snippets to your past work. But hey, we're podcasters; we can do whatever yeah. we want. Or or you could be making a Blu-ray of a very popular trilogy. And add lines that don't need to be added. <laughs> Possibly, yes. Uh, no, no, not saying anyone in particular. No, no, not at all. So yeah, no story school this time, but in a sense we'll be going over a lot of our old story school topics. It's so. a clip show with Ta-da! new info. <laughs> so I guess we'll start off with, we're going to start backwards. We'll start with episode 19. Okay, so the last episode. Which was comedy. Comedy. It was hilarious. It was very funny. Well, so, it was not really all that no, funny. But. No, no. I, I did want to point out, I was thinking after the fact, a one sort of comedy, I don't know if it's a special type, but that I really enjoyed, it's kind of the quirky comedy. Like, have you ever seen Pushing Daisies? Have you seen that show? No. Oh, it's a genius show. But they're, they're shows that they're just off enough, and they do everything in a certain style. You know, it's not necessarily a laugh out loud funny all the time, but it's just, everything's, it's like taking a picture and hanging to the skew. I really like that. The Middleman was a great show. <laughs> I've only saw one episode of that, but it just seems completely insane. Can we insert a quote from Millman here? Middleman! We don't find an antidote. Our heart's gonna explode like a sausage casing full of weasels. Middleman! Chocoholics Anonymous! Middleman! <laughs> That's just a humdinger then, isn't it? Middleman! Sweet mother of Preston Tucker, did you pick him up in that? I didn't have too much to add, but I just thought those were some instances of a certain type of humor I think would be worth addending, appending, I guess. Amending? Something like that. Um, yeah, the stapling. Com- <laughs> the comedy podcast is, is so recent. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything to... At least there was something that I immediately thought afterwards, oh, we forgot to talk about this. You know, we, we just need more jokes, I think. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not... I, I don't know if I confessed it last episode. I cannot tell a joke. It's pretty bad. My dad can't. It's genetic. We're just... It's not there. And yet, somehow, the improv things we do at the end of the episode seem to turn out at least entertaining to us. Well, okay, I can be funny... I can't tell a joke. I can't be like, <laughs> That's true. you know, knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Moo! You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, enough comedy. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. Time to cry. Oh, yeah. Tragedy. Tragedy. That was episode 18. We actually, we did not expect those two episodes to actually meld together as well as they did. That, yeah, that was quite unexpected, how we came to similar conclusions for those and the fact that it means so much more for both mediums if you have an underlying meaning behind what you're you're going to say. And if you don't mind kind of jumping ahead here a little bit, it. I was kind of listening to old podcasts earlier today so I could kind of get caught up in my mind. It's been a while since I listened to some of these. And our conversation about a moral universe... Episode had, 4. Episode 4 had very strong connections to these two conversations about comedy and tragedy it was it was quite interesting i mean there was even a rant from nick about battlestar galactica throwing in bad things just to make things more dramatic um there were some interesting similarities even though they were they were tates months apart i mean we had slightly different focuses in each one but i mean we talked about hamlet and both of them uh, yeah i noticed that hamlet seems to be a recurring like the only like serious thing that reoccurs as opposed to like star wars and lost and yeah you got this you know this it's our one example of classical literature. Well, plus there's your Dostoevsky. Oh, yeah, I guess Dostoevsky has to be show, 
which I don't know why I didn't bring him up for tragedy. I guess he's not actually sad, just lots of bad things happen. Mm, yeah, I guess that's true. It is interesting, though, and I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'm teaching a class at Taylor Upland, my alma mater now. I say part of the week down in Muncie with a friend of mine from Taylor who's now taking classes and teaching uh, classes at Ball State. And one thing he's said recently that kind of is some ties into all this is that he finds it a little frustrating because he teaches creative writing. Okay. So he's right up in the same alley with a lot of this kind of stuff. One thing he finds a little frustrating about teaching at a secular university is he feels that he could be more beneficial to students if he could talk a bit more about his personal philosophy and beliefs about how, about why you do this sort of thing. And is really, you know, quite similar to how we do it. I mean, we don't advertise our podcast as being a Christian podcast because we're not about evangelism or heavy theology. It was just for our understanding of storytelling, our Christianity just inevitably is a part of that. And I think that came through especially true with the, the moral universe and this comedy tragedy thing, having the having something of foundation underneath it. Because a lot of, and what John was commenting, that a lot of postmodern education, you don't have any kind of foundation belief under it because, you know, everyone believes different things. It's just kind of, these are things that we teach for whatever reason. Well, I don't even know how you would approach art if you didn't have some sort of foundation. I mean, you just do whatever makes you feel good, I guess. I suppose. I mean, I don't, I don't, I haven't thought that through. It just, yeah, I mean, to me, all, all these subjects we talk about on this podcast only make sense from kind of this foundation that Tim and I share. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that, you know, people are listening to agree who don't necessarily have the same exact foundation, but it just seems like having some sort of rooted belief that beauty and truth and creation and stuff exist makes a big difference with what sort of stories you write. I mean, I, I think there's a reason why Lord of the Rings has a, a stronger impact than some other fantasy that's just as well crafted mm-hmm. in the sense of world building. Yeah, and I think you can see that to a certain extent, how a number of fantasy they get modern fantasy books I I haven't read a lot but from my understanding is that a lot of them get caught up in the world building and may not may or may not necessarily have a deeper reason for why does this exist why do i want to do this Mm -hmm. so anyway hopefully we're filling a niche (laughs) in that regard yeah yeah because this is something we feel passionately about and hopefully our listeners do too yeah with tragedy i had one last thing i had to mention is that it is a shame that we did not mention arthur miller this is true. I, you know, I did think about that because Arthur Miller is right some of the most depressing tragedies. He, his mutant power is to make the most depressing situation humanly possible, and then make it more depressing. The next scene. If you're not hurt, familiar with Arthur Miller, he's a playwright. He wrote *Death of a Salesman*, *The Crucible*, *All My Sons*. All my sons, yeah. It just kills you watching some of these things. And that's not to say that they're bad. I mean, they're amazingly written. Death of a Salesman is one of the most powerful plays I've ever seen. But they're so heart-wrenching. Yeah, I suppose if you want to learn how to make that sort of tragedy, just dissect a couple of his plays and you'd be... Mm-hmm. How to hollow out some person's heart and then, you know, cram it full of bitter salt. Yeah, not, I'm not sure that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not the kind of story I typically would want to write. But I think they make, he writes some good stuff and that probably worth worth partaking in. Yeah. I, I have not seen Death of the Salesman. Only All My Sons, um, yeah. which was, I saw, you know, at the high school did. And it was just, yeah. Yeah, Death of the Salesman is just like, it's 
it's an average American's life or an average American trying to pursue the American dream, but it takes on Greek level tragedy. Just epic, sorrowful tale. I don't know how I never read that when I was in school. I saw it for art as an experience. Okay. It's for school, naturally. Naturally. <laughs> um, I guess we'll move on to 17. 17. Which was Magic, Morals, and Muggles. Yes. Which was actually a, a, a podcast that I think we mentioned this earlier. We had wanted to do for a long time and finally got around to feeling like we knew what we were doing enough to talk about it. Right. Because we knew it was a controversial thing. We knew it was a big one. And um, another, but... another moral universe example. That's true. I gotta mention, back when Moral Universe, when we first did that one, I remember you mentioning, wow, this is a lot more philosophical than our first three. And then it seems like we kind of go back and forth between these kind of philosophical ones and then these... Some of the more practical kind of more evaluating, not necessarily the philosophy behind what you do, but the actual form of what you're working well, yeah, with. Yeah, which I think is a nice balance. Yeah, yeah. But I, you and me, Tim, just had the other day uh, a conversation I thought could have been thrown into the magic muggles, etc., which was the the Frog Prince? Uh, the is that yeah the Frog Frog Princess by Disney? Oh yeah, Princess and the Frog. I, I always get it wrong. <laughs> frog Princess is an actual young adult book. Well, okay, maybe it's a, t a kids book. It's wait wait the the, la the was it their last two D animated thing? Well, Winnie the Pooh was the oh, last two D, but next to last, but, and still a rare one in this day and age. Yeah, which I love the color of it and everything. We were mentioning mm. that the bad guy in that had the voodoo with it, and that. It was freaky stuff. Power of the voodoo. Yeah. <laughs> but that, it was freaky stuff, and in yeah. some ways, we thought that was a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it was probably the first Disney film, or it, really any kid's film that I can think of off the top of my head, that really portrayed, like, you don't want to be messing with this black magic stuff. I mean, it will mess you, it can mess you up. The, the other scene that I can think of a Disney film that was kind of that sense of evil is Frollo's song from Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay. There's a lot of that, like, it's not magic at that point, but it's still that lot, you know, very dark, half-demonic right. sense. You know, I've never actually seen Hunchback of Notre Dame. That fell into a phase where my family was sort of boycotting Disney, mm -hmm. you know, for a number of reasons. Yeah. But I've heard some very interesting, yeah, it sounds like a very, uh, very dark song for a kid's movie. I mean, if they had done Hunchback, that thing, in a more serious, less kid thing, it could have been a genius. I mean, because the intro and that song are just genius. Mm. But it's it's such a lopsided movie mm -hmm. all over the place. Right. That seems to be the general impression <laughs> you get from it. <laughs> Do you have anything to add to our magic discussion? We talked, we tackled most of what we wanted to say in that one. I, I think so, um, and been gratified to hear some of the responses to that. I know it's a it's a big issue, so I imagine we'll get a lot more feedback in the days and weeks to come. Uh, Sixteen was when we had interactive stories, interactive stories, video games, and choose, choose your, your own, own adventures, adventures and stuff, which was quite an entertaining episode. Yeah, it was. It was. Different. Half the time, whenever we do these topics, the first, like, I don't know, 10 minutes of us is of kind of fumbling around trying to figure out what threads we're going <laughs> to pursue. And what is the plot of this podcast? <laughs> kind of. And then at some point, one of us will ask the other a question, and that will get us rolling. So, Tim, what do you think about interactive fiction? <laughs> um, well, uh... <laughs> Let's cut to a soundtrack. No. <laughs> <laughs> The only thing, we, we didn't tackle much role-playing game, as in, like, Dungeon Dragon. That's true. Which I don't, I actually don't have much experience in. And I've got limited experience. I think the group that I played such games with focused to an extent more on combat than, I mean, sometimes we tried to do more story. And, but I know some people really get into the 
the story creating aspect. If you ever read, there's a uh, there's a great web comic. Well, there's two cool web comics. Well, there are a lot of web comics about three role playing. Three games. things that. <laughs> But one of, there's one that's about Star Wars as if it was people playing it as a role-playing game, not knowing anything about Star Wars. <laughs> it's based off of someone else's idea that did this with the Lord of the Rings, which works even better because that's an actual medieval setting and actually inspired a lot of D&D. But the interesting thing about the Star Wars one is that the guys who write it are apparently people who put a lot of effort into the actual storytelling aspect of it. And so, you know, they leave authors' comments at the end. I'm not always certain how much of it they actually implement. I think sometimes they get ideas from their own work and doing the strip about these guys. But it is interesting to think about how involved it could be. Because, I mean, in a sense, you're creating a story as you go. The saying is that a good GM doesn't completely railroad the players into following a set path. A lot of it is up to them making it up as, as they go along. It depends on the on a group style, but there's a lot of interesting possibilities there. I wanted to throw out because we've we've talked about story project and all other things that from a at least from a creator's point of view, I think some of these collaborative fiction things are sort of interactive fiction. We've talked about the revolution here before. No one knew where the thing was going. Yeah, <laughs> and people just kept throwing new ideas in, and it was kind of a adapt every time you it was your turn to write. And I guess it's not pure interactive fiction, but it's a sort that I really enjoy, where you're a creator and what you're creating keeps changing without your permission. Yeah, that's no, I think that's valid. And, and and I really enjoy doing that. I don't have much chance to do it now. I know there's lots of places on, on the web where you can where you start a story and people make next chapter or sometimes they'll branch off and you can add more to it and it's like a an organic choosing an adventure. I wish I had one of those sites off the top of my head. Mm. But there's a number of them out there. And even when we were doing the story project and we were trying to plan it out a little bit more carefully, there would still be times when another author would do something interesting with one of your characters that you hadn't expected. But you're like, hey, that's really cool. Let's you, know, you keep playing off of yeah, that. Yeah, it's all, it's all just about you know going with what you have and it forces you to be really creative. And that's why I like about it. I wrote, write some of my best stuff when I'm backed into a corner by someone else and you know have to make it up. Yeah. So... Might as well throw in, we're, we're mainly focusing on all our past story schools here, but I do have to throw in that I do thank everyone for the peer pressure that finally got me to see uh, Never Ending Story, um, <laughs> which is what we talked about in the second half of that, of that episode. And I do also apologize, we talked about this on the comment board, but it is kind of true, all the clips that we picked from the Never Ending Story were kind of depressing. <laughs> They're the best ways to show the German expressionism. That's true. I had to say, thing they learned from the podcast, from your podcasting, maybe we should do this at the end. Yeah. German expressionism. That's true. I, I knew nothing about it before we started this podcast. There you go. Right. Episode 15 was creativity. Yes. And I guess I just have a personal story. I've been putting together a collection of flash fictions. I have 50 of them on my website, making a book out of them. And I wrote story notes for them, like telling people where the ideas came from, or whatever. And I realized many of the stories were influenced by other books I had read, yeah. or or movies, or whatever. And I was I got to thinking, oh, I read this thing that Isaac Asimov, his iRobot collection of stories, was actually in. He had read some other stories about people presenting robots in a sympathetic light, people who you never hear about anymore. And I, I wonder how many famous works are made by writers or directors that saw some lesser-known work, and that inspired them to make their new one. And, mm -hmm. and the you know, the inspiration is gone. You know, no one ever reads fill-in-the-blank. Yeah. I suppose Joseph Campbell probably, I don't know how known that was known before George Lucas. Now everyone's like, oh, George Lucas used Joseph Campbell. Da -da -da -da. That's true. 
Joseph Campbell being the one who, who came up with a whole philosophy about how a lot of stories have this archetype of a hero's journey. And basically all the archetypes that you see in Star Wars were kind of continued. But no, that makes a lot of sense. With each cinema selections we've done, we've often talked about how this classic movie influenced all these other movies and directors that came after it. So there's certainly nothing wrong. In fact, it, it, I think it's part of the great part about art that it kind of inspires more art. Yeah, I, I, just, I, just, I don't know if we mentioned that. I thought that was kind of interesting. That I mean, obviously inspired by life, but it's almost inspired as much by someone else's fictional collection of life. Mm-hmm. You know, how many how many stories have been inspired by Homer's The Odyssey? Or The Lord of the Rings. Or the Lord of the, exactly. <laughs> or or, or uh, since it's the 30th anniversary, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, how many movies came after that? <laughs> That's true. Or, to be uh, also very poignant, today we talked about earlier, uh, well, before we started recording, marks the seventh anniversary of Oceanic Flight 815 crashing on a certain island. I know, and they were never found. They were in the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, isn't that weird? I know. It's just so strange. Yeah, yeah. Poor family. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, what's next? Oh, fandom. Yes. Should we just go ahead and insert our uh, yeah. first... We've, we've, audio here? Yeah, let's do that. We've got uh, Laura Fisher, who came and talked with us about fandom, and she had a little bit more to add to that, so let's uh, turn it over to Laura. Hey guys, thanks for the opportunity to add some thoughts to our previous discussion. I've been listening to your podcast since I was on it and listening to back episodes too, and there's quite a few things I'd love to discuss with you. I'd I'd love to be in the room with you talking about magic and, and tragedies and all the things you've discussed. When thinking about all the things I want to talk about, I would really like to expand on the idea of fan fiction a little bit. And that's because... One of the things we talked about was how fan fiction and fans are looked down on somewhat by the mainstream media as being, or just people in general, as being weird and out of the ordinary and, you know, people living in their basements who don't get to get out and see much. And this is really a very odd way of looking at things in my perspective, because to me, well, I know a lot of people who write fan fiction and we're all really pretty normal for the most part. But I also want to point out that fandom as a concept, is not unusual at all. It is, in fact, incredibly common. And I'm not just talking about media or stories or created works. I am talking about everything. For everything out there, there is a fandom. It's just not called that. For instance, think of wine. There are wine connoisseurs who travel around the world tasting wine, writing articles about it, talking about how they like it to be better, comparing this wine to that wine. And to someone who's not in that world, it can all seem rather ridiculous. You know, (laughs) how can you tell the difference between one Bordeaux and another that's grown, you know, two miles apart? To a wine connoisseur, these two wines will be very different, have very different flavors, and enormous things to say about them. To an outsider, it means absolutely nothing. Think also of politics. I mean, you want to talk about a fandom. Wow. Every politician will have their detractors and their fans. They'll have huge, long articles written about them. They'll have common folk who who discuss them in very intellectual and interesting ways, and they'll have people who hate them. There will be controversies stirred up among fans of politics, so to speak. It's just, it's such a fandom. Politics. And not just individual politicians, but political ideologies. Conservatism, liberalism, libertarianism, classical liberalism, the Labor Party, etc., Oh, and sports. Don't even get me started on sports. Now, you want to talk about a fandom. 
sports fans are some of the worst if you want to get into people who are strange and aggressive and out there and yet there are plenty of people who love sports who you know they're just regular folks they go to work they do the dishes after dinner and they watch football and maybe they get a little crazy about it they're fans it's a fandom there was an xkd comic about how Anybody can be in any part of culture, any small niche can become connoisseurs of something. They, they, I think the comic said if you locked, you know, 50 people in a bunker with nothing but pictures of Dick Cheney eating hot dogs, after 50 years, there would be people who talked about how one picture was better than another, and they would have long, intricate discussions about it and arguments, and, you know, I think this one was better because there was mustard on the hot dog, or things like this. Just everything in life has this ability to have fans and sometimes kind of crazy ones. And in all of these microcosms of culture that I just brought up, when I look at online and see discussions between people and in real life, I see all the marks of a fandom. I see big-name fans, people who are well-known for their commentary and who are looked up to by other fans. I see wank, which is when fans argue for about sometimes very silly things. I see people being thrown for a loop when something new happens in the fandom. And just, it's... It's so incredibly normal. Just so normal. And talking about fan fiction, there's a very interesting article which I read just a little bit ago talking about fan fiction. And one thing it said was that people who write fan fiction are not just consumers of media. They are talking back to fiction in its own language. And I really appreciate the idea. I mean, there are plenty of people who watch movies and TV and review them and do commentaries, but fan fiction writers are fans who talk back, who join the discussion in their own way. And that is what I think can be very appealing and one reason it is so popular and so beloved. So that's my little talk about fandom, and I'm sure you can think of lots of other things that are just regular things in real life that have fans, too. All right, thanks, guys. Hope you have a good podcast. So long. This is Laura, also known as Machorian. So that was Laura's talk about fandoms, things she want to add from her interview with us or time with us just kind of sharing that you know fandoms are kind of a part of not just uh stories culture but a lot of different cultural ideas i would here's a question tim do you think like when i did girl called snark why had those bonus stories is that a sort of self-fandom i don't know that's <laughs> i think that's a stretch it's more like your own spin-offs okay i just i was just thinking that i i enjoyed doing those but bonus stories where you're writing a story you're writing a novel Someone says, hey, what about this? And you just write a little sidetrack, I guess. Because, I mean, J. Michael Straczynski would do that for Babylon 5. He had, like, short stories for the Baptized magazine or whatever. Well, these are requested by my fans. That's not the same I thing. Know. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. So, um, episode 13 was How to Read a Story. Oh, yes. I, you know, I was thinking about this because when my wife watched Metropolis with me, uh-huh. it's a silent film, and you have to watch that very differently. It's true. And she understood that, but she didn't like it. Which I think comes back to that whole, like, you can understand it, but you don't have to... Appreciate appre- it. Well... Or you can appreciate it, but not necessarily like it. Yeah. That's better way to put it. Yeah. So, Silent Film was just my experiencing that after the fact. You know, I was going through our podcast, like, oh, yeah, how do you story? I just did that two and a half hour silent film. That's true. Which I really enjoyed. And I can, I can adjust pretty well to different types of media. I don't have much expectation of what I'm going into.
I had another thought about how to, I actually had a thought from listening today about how to read a story, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Yeah, it'll come to me. Maybe I'll record it and I'll stick it in later. So Tim has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> All right. We're just, we're just hammering these off, Tim. Yeah. Episode 12 is young adult novels, which we got some very unique comments on. I mean, we heard from people who yeah, really so, appreciate the talking about the young adult novels. And I don't remember if I mentioned it on here before or not, but I did have a, a cousin who is a mother and who, who agreed with Natasha. She's like, yeah, I, I like doing the young adult stuff because it's simpler and easier to pick up and, and just uh, just enjoy. Yeah, my uh, one of my students in eight, seventh grade would just read an article about how the Night Circus is supposed to be like the next Hunger Games and Harry Potter. And she's like, I want that. I'm like, I think I have an advanced reader copy of that. Oh, nice. And, which I don't think was covered by Natasha. But it's a very good book. Well, from what I hear, I haven't read it. It's supposed <laughs> to be the next big thing. Uh -huh. But we have, a, we have a little recording from Natasha, too, kind of updating anyone who's interested on books that are coming out in the next few months that she recommends. This is Natasha Hayden. When I did the podcast with Nick and Tim on young adult fiction, there were a lot of books that I was looking forward to coming out this year that I didn't have. Um, some of these are out now. Some of them are going to be out in the near future since I've read basically all advanced reader copies. <laughs> so I'll tell you which ones are out now. The Girl and the Steel Corset by Katie Cross. That is Victorian steampunk. Also out now is A Long, Long Sleep by Anna Sheehan, and I may be pronouncing some of these names wrong. That is kind of um, futuristic, based on the tale of Sleeping Beauty, but very modern. <laughs> Story about a girl who falls asleep uh, in stasis, and she's supposed to be w woken up by her parents um, after a short time, but she ends up being there for decades. So that's really interesting. That's one I highly recommend. We also have The Vespertine by Sandra Mitchell. I met this author. She came to visit Summer Stories here in Kendallville. That one's interesting. It's Victorian, and the girl can basically see the future when the sun is setting. Crossed, the sequel to Match by Ali Condi. Um, that's a really hot trilogy right now. Only two books out. That one actually doesn't come out until November, but I just finished reading it. And it's, it's just a fun series. It's dystopian, and I recommend that one just for a good, fun read. Books that are coming out soon. Variant by Robison Wells comes out in mid-October. That's just an interesting... one's hard to describe. It's kind of dystopian. It's about this kid who doesn't have any connections, no family or anything, who signs up to go to this school. What, when he gets there, he realizes it's basically a prison. Only kids run the school. There's no way to get out. And then the twists just keep coming. It gets crazier and crazier. That's a good one for guys, I think. We have The Girl of Fire and Thorns. That's one I highly recommend by Ray Carson. The main character of this book, she's a princess. She's about to get married. Right away, you start off with a wedding, which is unusual for a young adult. Usually that's, you know, the climax if you even have a wedding in a young adult, which you usually don't. Um, but she's a princess. She goes and marries this king so that she can help both countries form an alliance to fight against their enemies. Then she gets kidnapped. Um, it's a great adventure. I love the way it's written. It has a Hispanic Catholic 
flair to it, which is unusual for most of the young adult I read. Usually it's, you know, Caucasian, takes place either in a fantasy world or in a world resembling America, but this has much more of a Hispanic Catholic flair to it, which is, I just found it fascinating. Then we have Pure by Juliana Bagot. This book comes out in February of next year. I highly recommend it. I think it's as good as, as Hunger Games, and um, I don't think it will be as popular as Hunger Games because it doesn't have that catchy title. It's the same sort of dystopia, has um, crazy elements in it. For instance, there's this basically apocalypse, end of the world type of scenario where the world goes up in flames and only these people in domes are saved, and anybody who's outside the domes gets fused to whatever they're near. So the main character the character of this book, she has a doll head for a hand, and her grandfather has a fan lodged in his throat. And other people get fused together. Mothers get fused with their children, so their children never grow up, but they're still alive and part of them. There's a boy with birds in his back. Live birds are just part of him. So it's a fascinating world. A well-written story, part of a series, and that one I highly, highly recommend. And then there's Fracture by Megan Miranda out in January of next year. That's just an interesting book about a girl who should have died in a in an accident on a frozen lake. She was in the water for 11 minutes, but she gets pulled out. And her brain, according to all the scans and everything, is messed up. So messed up she shouldn't, she should be in a vegetative state, but she wakes up from a coma and goes on to try to live a normal life, except that she's she has this inner pull toward people who are dying. She just gets this itch, and she'll wake up in the night, and she knows somebody's about to die, and she, she just knows where, too. Her body just directs her to that person, but she can't do anything about it. And it has some interesting romance in it, too. Uh, my sister-in-law, Summer, really liked it, too. Then another one I've read recently, it's not new, but it's a book that I don't know how I missed in school, maybe just didn't fit right because it's a 1990s sort of classic, The Giver by Lois Lowry. That was another one my sister-in-law Summer recommended to me. It's a dystopian novel and it's kind of a middle school novel but I read young adult in middle school and <laughs> so anybody could read it but it's fascinating and I recommend that too. And I could list a lot of other interesting titles. Oh my goodness, I have shelves full of books right now to read but I'm kind of running out of time because other news from our family, uh, we are going to have a baby, uh, we think it's a girl, <laughs> uh, at the end of October. So I'll try to get in as many reads as I can. And as always, you can find me at natashasshelf.blogspot.com. Thank you for having me. And so that was uh, my lovely wife, Natasha, who, during the party we had tonight, was in the Geisha costume like she had promised. Yeah, she looked lovely. I was yeah. I was impressed at uh, her being pregnant at all. It fit her really well. Yeah, yeah. So, well, we, we, we have a good relationship with our Japanese neighbor. Oh, okay. Nice. So, um, <laughs> episode 11 was Villains. And I actually couldn't think of anything to add. We were just that perfect. We were just that perfect. Or in the, actually, we did a lot of talking in the comments too about big villain, uh, about That's like true. the force of nature villain and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Nathan had some stuff to add about Galacticus mm -hmm. and, and so forth. But yeah, I think I think we got villains covered. All right, all right there we go. That's all we've got. <laughs> um, episode ten, then heroes. Heroes.
Did you mention, we talked about the perfect hero, and then I think sometimes after that you mentioned that my uh, Squire hero was kind of different than anything we had talked about. You know, I think that might have been before I had read the Squire. Yeah, because that was, I think the Heroes podcast was while I was still in uh, Virginia Beach. Okay. But yeah, no, that's a very good point. Uh, Obed is a, quite a different hero, really, than like any other one. <laughs> I don't know how you would define him exactly. He's, I mean, I think I talked about during that podcast, I liked heroes who are just kind of do it because it's the right thing to do, which is kind of Obed, but he's, he's not quite an anti-hero. He's not quite mm-hmm. a reluctant hero, but he kind of is. Uh, yeah. Well, because he does do it because he thinks it's just the right thing to do, but it's not with any sense of bravado at all. He doesn't get, he doesn't really show emotions hardly at all, really. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have them. Yeah, it's it's, it's a strange, odd little boy he is. It's really, I, he really is a hard one to describe. You really kind of have to read him. I, I think, suppose I'll have to get him. a publish someday, huh, Tim? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Which I don't know how much that will, well... I do think it's probably a more marketable book than Strand and Fred. <laughs> My sister is reading Strand and Fred right now. and I said something about book two has a lot more internal conflict. And she's like, really? <laughs> 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 like, yeah. Strand and Fred is this really weird blend of literature and fairy tale. Yeah, it's, it's with the mind and the king. <laughs> it is. But the squire is somehow a bit more straightforward while not being straightforward at all. <laughs> <laughs> For heroes, I also want to mention, you know, modern heroes always have to wrestle with something, change, and they're always about being, uh, what's the opposite of a static hero? Active, not addict, but active, but you change, you know, yeah. you, you, you evolve. Uh-huh. I was thinking, I'm reading um, The Hunt of the Baskerville right now from my class. Sherlock Holmes doesn't change. He's That's just true. Sherlock Holmes. I mean, yeah. he just is. And I think mysteries get away with that a lot more because the focus and the narrative is rooted in the mystery and not in the characters. That's that's true. And I think it's a different type of hero where it just what he's just always the same and the situations around him change. Mm-hmm. I think some comic book heroes used to be that way before the modern right. age. Very occasionally you would you would see something come and kind of test Holmes' personality like uh, there's that, that one story about the woman who actually outwitted Holmes, who got away from him essentially. And he always talked about her as the woman, uh, not like the man, the, the woman. But, but that was kind of, that was a rare event. I actually have not read many of the short stories. I, I've read I, I would like to. Yeah. But like Father Brown, he doesn't necessarily change. I mean, lo- I think true. that's the kind of standard with mysteries. I mean, they, they can over time slowly, but right. it's not the same crucible that they always talk about due to your main character. Although, interestingly, Father Brown does wind up reforming another character. That's true. I don't remember the name of that guy. But the, the, he, thief, the, slash. the thief, who's kind of a Carmen Sandiego type guy, who acts like he's he's a very chivalrous thief, but eventually Father Brown just kind of points out, hey, you are a thief. <laughs> <laughs> Father Brown, if you, I don't think we've talked about him before, is um, um, G.K. Chesterton, his version of Sherlock Holmes. He's a, he's a priest who solves mysteries. Uh-huh. And usually there's some moral component. We should have brought that up in the moral universe. That that would have fit really well, actually. Because the way he fits it in is really interesting. Those are those are great short stories. I read most of that collection you gave me. The, you know, the, you probably read more of it than I did. I don't know if I... I mean, I read like... I remember my mom found this at a book sale or something. It's like a thousand pages. Yeah, it's like all the Father Brown stories. And it's like, oh, there's a lot of short stories. And I think I only read through like the first collection of them. 
think got through two or three of the five collections. Okay. They were really, really good. I know. I, th- I think there's an actual full-length novel in there somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't read that. Then. Yeah. All right, so that's... We're halfway, Tim. Yeah. We made it. It's, it's, I think it's time to party. I think it's time to party. So this is my first soundtrack. So, my soundtrack today is Donut Lift Jam, the mix from Yoshi's Island. This is from a VG Mix, which no longer exists, which is sad. That's sad. And it is, and so I stole this, you know, years ago and I had it on my iPod. Good thing you had it. I know. I I had to pull off my old iPod because it wasn't on my new one. Oh. And it is remixed by Daniel Lippert and Silas Thurnstein. Okay, Tim. <laughs> just for the record, another thing I've learned from podcasting, no matter what song I pick, I cannot pronounce the remixer's name. <laughs> You really need to do more Maze Dude. I entirely. need to do more Maze Dude. Or DJ Pretzel. Maybe I'll do all Maze Dude for the next t- ten, 10 episodes. <laughs> all Maze Dude all the time. But anyways, this is a, a fun party song. Just sit back, relax, enjoy.
And we're back. That is a great song. That is a fabulous song. So, Tim, welcome back. Yes. This is, um, we are back. Continuing our epic run through all of our past episodes. Yeah, our final countdown. <laughs> so, um, we, episode nine, oh, ten. We're on episode ten. No, we're on, we're, oh, we're oh, yeah. on nine. Nine. Nine, just for an uh, interesting fact. My son's favorite number. Really? Yeah. Isn't It'll, your son like two? Yeah. And he'll be like, nine, nine. Like, I'll be like, one, two, three, nine. Yes. It seems nine. to remind me of a square one. Square. <laughs> Square one. <laughs> the stories are fibs, but they're short. <laughs> so, episode nine was reboots. Reboots. We need to reboot square one. Yes, we do. I totally agree. I do feel like you can't talk about reboots without mentioning the latest big reboot that's going on right now, being the DC Universe. All that DC Universe stuff. Yeah, I know. I've not actually. I've not read them because. I mean, I tend to not really follow comics until they're in trade paperback, and I can check them out from the library, which is probably not helping the comic industry in any way <laughs> whatsoever. But I have been following what some people have said about them on the blogs, and as much as I support reboots in the sense, like, I thought the Ultimate Spider-Man, at least what I read of it, was really interesting. I really enjoyed the chance to just be able to jump right in. They had all the characters, like we talked about in the reboots, they had all the ter- characters set up already, and just roll with them. The DC reboot has seemed kind of messy. It sounds like some characters are carried over from their chronology from before the reboot, and some aren't. And I don't really understand why, except that it's company desires that one is one or other. Hmm. Like, for instance, Green Lantern is not really changing, and partly because the Green Lantern comics have been so awesome over the last few years. They've got, gotten a lot of acclaim, and the guy who writes them, Jeff Johns, is like one of the heads of DC now. So they weren't going to touch his stuff, but they apparently were like are restarting a lot of other things, which is interesting. And some of it has some potential, but as with any fan reboot, it, there's some that I'm a bit concerned about. And Superman is probably one of those. I think we talked about it. Can't remember if I talked about it just with you, with you personally, or on the podcast. But I mean, Superman. We all know that his story from so many yeah. times, and. It, They've t- taken it in some odd directions. I won't go into it much more because I haven't actually read it myself. But there's some concerns there, and it'll, it'll be an interesting one to watch develop. I know that our friend uh, Keith has been keeping up with at least Batwoman. Oh, and, yeah. And really like where that's going. Okay. One of the things I was most happy about the reboots, and some people would disagree with me, but I was really, really happy that Barbara Gordon became Batgirl again. Oh, that's what I mean, Batgirl, not oh, Batwoman. Oh, well, I mean, there is an actual Batwoman. I'm thinking Barbara Gordon. You're thinking Barbara Gordon. Yeah. Okay. Barbara Gordon had been paralyzed for a long time. She was the original Batgirl, but she'd been paralyzed for years, over maybe like two decades or something. And she, I mean, she had a cool, cool role as that, as a, uh, as the Oracle. She had access to basically all the internet. Well, all the she could find out any kind of information that the Justice League needed, and it was it was an interesting role, but. She had such a fun role as Batgirl that I really missed her from from the stuff I had read about her and had seen her in action from the cartoon. I really missed having her in the role, so I thought it was cool that that they uh, gave another go around. Plus, I mean, in the DC universe where people die and are brought back to life like at least once a year, uh, 
and all the crazy things. It was kind of ridiculous that they couldn't heal paraplegia. I mean, that sounds strange, but <laughs> in the DC universe... How dare you not heal that? You can heal death. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was just awkward. Some people would say, ah, but she was. it was a cool role for a handicapped person. I mean, like, I don't know. Here's a question, Tim, for you. We're along the reboot line. Classic movies that they then remake. Mm-hmm. Like, I was talking with our friend Nathan about Fright Night. I hadn't seen either version, but he had seen the old one and the new one. Okay. Why is it the new ones are always tend to always be lamer than the original ones? Probably because when they, well, some of them, when they update, their idea of making things more modern just means making things dumbed down. And that's actually probably true. Because they're like, yeah. well, why are you You know, they take all the, they like, oh, the idea is great. Like, like, the one-sentence concept is great, but we're going to throw out all the stuff that made it classic. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know Fright Night. That probably wasn't necessarily classic to begin with. I don't know. Maybe it was a horror mm-hmm. classic. And, see, I think that's the problem with old-fashioned characters like Superman, whose roots are in something that's just very good and very basic. But too many people nowadays think that's outdated, unrealistic, that having a character that's that good of a person just doesn't work anymore when i would say it certainly does don't mess with my superman Um, you just gotta get someone who understands i know superman and i would think that the guy who's writing him grant morrison who's written some excellent superman comics would handle it but i'll just say that there's some things that have been a little uneasy about it's early to say yet they've only released one issue (laughs) so who knows all right that's all that's all we've got yep episode eight Adaptations. Adaptation. I don't think I have anything to say about this one either. Actually, I, I do. Tim, I've been Tim's meeting... on a roll on this. He likes this reboot adaptation thing. <laughs> well, actually, if you go back when I was listening through, I, I didn't listen to all the podcasts, thank goodness. Because um, my brain was beginning to hurt after listening to a couple in a row as it was. But um, that too can happen to you if you listen to a couple in a row. So, yeah, be warned. Um, but I thought the reboot one held up pretty well. I mean, that was just a fun discussion. Um, <laughs> so... I would re- highly recommend that one if you haven't listened to it yet. Um, but adaptation, my friend Greg left a comment about about this after the we finished the podcast, mentioning Full Metal Alchemist being a good adaptation. Oh, yeah, and I was like, yes, because <laughs> Full Metal Alchemist is an unusual case where it was adapted twice, and both adaptations I thought were pretty good, and they both had interesting, different things to to do with their adaptation. Full Metal Alchemist was a manga first. Yeah. And the first anime they made for it, they made while the manga was still going on. And so they changed a number of aspects to it. Now, sometimes when an anime does this, <clears throat> looking at you, Naruto, <laughs> it delves into pointless filler stuff that no one really cares about. But with Fullmetal Alchemist, they really did a good job of taking the story in a little different direction, but still being quite interesting and pretty internally consistent, I would say. I mean, Nick, you, that's the only series you've seen, and you yeah. really enjoyed no, it. Yeah, it made, it, yeah, I saw the first version, and yeah, it made a lot of good sense. Mm-hmm. And I know there are, a num- there are some people who are manga purists that are like, they're changing things, why are they doing this? I'm like, guys, it's, a, it's still good storytelling, it's different, but it's still good, which is, you know, pretty remarkable. Yeah. I don't know too many cases they do that. And then they made a second series where they followed the manga more closely. And they really up their ante in it, in the sense that in terms of production and the animation is just beautiful. Fluid. I mean, it was animation was good in the first. We series. had that coming from Netflix. You do? Oh, you should enjoy it. Or Quickster. 
Oh, yeah, whatever that is. <laughs> <sighs> anyway. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> The, the one downside to the, the second Fullmetal Alchemist series is called Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood is that because they had already done the first series, they kind of rushed through the content of the first, like, oh, 15 episodes or so. Because it's, I mean, it is all repeat. You've seen it in manga form. You've seen it in the yeah. other anime yeah. already. So you miss some of the character development that the first one had during those same storylines. So if you're interested in it, I would highly recommend you start with the original anime series and then watch the second series. Coming soon is uh, Full Metal Alchemist Sisterhood, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. What? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Now, unless it's going to be about Winry and a long-lost sister or something. It'll be a reboot in about 10 years. <laughs> Spin-off series. <laughs> oh, oh man. boy. Yeah. And then the Full Metal Alchemist Parenthood. <laughs> that is that is possibly more uh, possible. That, that's probably true. Okay, but I interrupted you like three times now. No, I was wrapping up. So, yeah, that's a, that is a great example of adaptation just done really, really well. Random adaptation I would like to see is the new BBC... Um, Sherlock Holmes, to talk about Sherlock Holmes again. Yeah. I've heard good stuff about it, but have not had a chance to watch Same it Same here. Yet. And I think it's interesting when they do a, an update into a modern setting. Yeah. Which I guess they've done with Sherlock Holmes before. I mean, pro who ha they've probably done everything with Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that's true. I think he's even gone to the future at some point in some, <laughs> some cartoon series. Oh, I, I remember that series. I, I yeah. Don't, I don't know if I really watched much of it. I just saw like a half an episode or something. Yeah. Right. Episode 7. This was our Christmas episode. Oh, yeah. Which we, I think I had an idea for a uh, for a sort of spinoff of that for when we get to the Christmas season again this year. Awesome. So Well, we, we need to like, release our Christmas episode about October. Isn't that how most people do things? <laughs> no, that's how the stores do oh, things. Oh, okay. If we were actually selling it. So that <laughs> might be reasonable. Yeah, but I have to episode. Everything's for sale. Right. Oh, right. It's a pay-only. Make sure we cut that yeah, out. Okay. Um, so episode seven was we talked about old stories, mm -hmm. stories that we had written that and got said, rid of, and or uh, not got rid of, but whether we still like them or not, whether we talked to ten foot pole. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we, you know, we kind of mine stuff. Doctor Zayacek, actually, I don't know if I mentioned this. I don't know if you knew it. Doctor Zayacek was a character that I mined from a previous idea. Oh, really? Yeah, a kind of odd one that I had about a, a series about a people that lived in this neighborhood. In this neighborhood. And each of their last names would start with a different letter. <laughs> nice. So he's the X. Yeah, he was the X. Nice. Um, I don't think he got developed very far, but that's how I originally found the name. Well, again, I've been working this flesh fiction collection, so I, oh, my mind's completely there. But a lot of those flesh fictions are uh, basically w ways to throw away ideas I've had for a long time. I have this one called uh, Schools Out about this conveyor belt world where there's this giant conveyor belt and motorcycles and all that. Um, but I came up with back on the blue van. The blue van was what we rode to high school and back. Was the whole time it wasn't a bus even. And my friend Randolph and I were just coming with these crazy ideas, most of which I still want to write a story of. But that one, I think it took the care from that and written in various versions. And he, he'll show up again at some point. I mean, I most of my ideas just keep coming back. It's like all Mizaki's characters look exactly like each other. Yeah, that body of work that yeah. you keep coming back to the ideas that are important to you. And that one, that's that's a whole thread of ones I haven't touched much. I mean, you got the string, the Fred, Fred Malish one, which way back from middle school days. Yeah. And then, you know, I pulled out my old, old first novel um, name last, was it last episode? My Ikrin? Oh, yeah, that's right. Someday it might be interesting. You remember that cyborg story I, I like, talked with you and David about yeah. a long time ago? Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever 
it would be interesting to recycle some of those concepts. But I have no idea. That's <laughs> you know how it is. There's so many stories you could tell. Well, yeah, time. And like, it's a little advice for myself with some old stories. At some point, just let it go. Yeah, I mean, no, it's no. like sometimes I keep one like maybe I should revise it again and make it and like just move on. Yeah, scrap it. Take all the best parts. Do something else. Mm-hmm. Which I'm not sure if we're taking that advice to heart with this episode, but oh uh, well, we're revisiting all of our old ideas. So. Yeah. But it's, it's a good recap. Yeah. So episode six was weather, which oh, was yeah. one of my favorite ones. It really was. <laughs> I think by this point is when we were really starting to hit our groove in terms of keeping kind of on focus, on, on target. And it helped, for one thing, that you had planned out some ideas beforehand. And it helped that I actually do a lot of weather in my in my stories. I don't know. It's just something I guess I've always done. Yeah. You, so we had a lot of examples to, to pull from. Yeah, really, I'm not sure I could add anything to it. It was just really great discussion. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, all I can mention that certain genres use it even more. I was thinking, like, I wrote a Gothic horror story, mm. and there's certain atmospheric things that matter even more in horror. Mm. No, that's very certain, true. And, you know, in Haunted Baskerville, you know, certain things that, where like, it's more, you know, it's necessary. It's not just nice. It's like, yeah. you can't do the story without it. Yeah. And that may or may not be related to the weather. I mean, I suppose a lot of horror stories you've got. Well, we talked about atmosphere. We talked about yeah, we talked about crazy. atmosphere in that too. Yeah. So. Episode five is uh, pacing. That was oh, yeah. uh, interesting. I'm not sure. That one it seems <laughs> we seem to have forgotten about. That was one I, I listened to today because like you know I don't really remember this conversation. <laughs> I don't that remember well. it all either. And it was one that we did kind of struggle with because it was at least to talk about at length. Because I mean, there's no question that it's course important to have pacing in the story but the trick was so much of it we just we realized it was a case-by-case basis it was hard to apply principles and talk about it for yeah, a long length the of only time. thing i could add is another case example oh yeah i was watching a team mm-hmm. uh, which is a great movie but i felt like they needed to slow down a little bit at certain <laughs> places it was move i mean it was like constant barrage of crazy stuff. I don't know. That's which, like, well, which I really enjoyed, but I could have, I think could use one or two little bits of character stuff. I'm maybe. pretty sure Buckethead the movie would have been like that. Oh, yeah. The, <laughs> the nice thing with Buckethead is that he's constantly coming back and talking to, he has someone to center himself, Molly. Uh-huh. But I, I agree, Buckethead's along the same lines. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure I would actually change it, but I could see someone saying, you know what? So, um, episode four, which is the moral universe. Which I guess has been kind of a theme of this episode. That's right. I guess we've co- we've kind of covered this already. I do. I do want to mention. That I read. I heard this interview with uh, what was his name? Andrew Roberts, who's a historian. So this is nonfiction. But he thought it was wrong to write history without having some sort of moral point of view on. Oh, interesting. Which I thought was an interesting comment uh-huh. that I just want to throw in here since it's related. He said, otherwise, what's the use of looking back at history if you're not going to make decisions on what went right and what went wrong? That's a very yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. He he he's written a lot on World War Two. He he wrote the the book that sounds interesting called a it was Churchill and Hitler Secrets of Leadership. It kind of compares their types of leaderships and because well, Hitler was a good leader. He yeah. was insane, but right, right. So, anyways, it was an interesting little tidbit I thought I'd throw in there. From the Artig on Tales episode, I do want to chide you all for not following No Ordinary Family, which I, I think know. was canceled. Uh, I, I watched it all the way through that season. Um, by the time this episode came out, I think it, there had been five episodes out. But I watched it all the way through. It was 20-some episodes. It was... 
I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, it was certainly not a perfect show, but there was there was a lot of I lo- I came to love really love the characters. They ironed out some of the more annoying plot points that had plagued the show at the beginning. Had a lot of potential. Really, I was kind of disappointed by the majority of last TV season. Now that I think about it, because the other superhero show I really got into, I guess actually came out of the spring was The Cape. Which I only I only had a chance to watch one episode. I I wanted to watch more. But it, was, it was like gone like yeah, it lasted right away. And I think it only lasted like ten episodes or something like that. Here's but, my new plan, Tim. All TV seasons need to have thirteen episodes. At least. I mean, just say, look, mm-hmm. we're going to give you a, half a season. So they can just plan for it that way. Yeah, and so if it doesn't get picked up, at least it's a story. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I couldn't understand. I mean, I could see how some people had plot problems with uh, No Ordinary Family. And even to a certain extent, The Cape. I mean, they were just so much fun. I don't get sometimes what what's, uh, TV critics have against fun action shows. Yeah, I don't know. Everything needs to be like Mad Men. Tim. Yeah. I guess. I've never even seen it. But yeah, it's all about AMC nowadays. I guess so. This season looks like it might have some neat stuff. It's, Possibly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very I'm, interested I'm canceled in... The, I'm, I'm sad they canceled V. I thought V had a lot going for it. Yeah, I, never, the event, I never got into V. Uh, I, I, yeah, I never... The event was one of those things, once it... It was kind of a lot like Flashpoint, actually. Once Flash Forward? Flash Forward, thank you. Don't give a giant three-month break when you try and get people to watch your show. I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to have completely forgotten all the other things in my mind. and That's why I didn't go back to the event. Well, the event always felt like it should have been better than it was. I always felt like it was just missing something. Mm-hmm. They aimed high, but they it just really never connected. Yeah. But right. hopefully, the, hopefully, person of interest with Michael Emerson will be awesome. I'll watch it at least once just because I want to see Michael Emerson. <laughs> I watched Terra Nova once because it looked kind of cool. Yeah, it's dinosaurs. Um, Once Upon a Time looks fun. Yeah, that's uh, anytime they try to put fairy tale stuff. Yeah, in exactly. A I mean, TV show. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Anyway, episode three from Boredom to Book, which was our talk on time management. Time, oh yeah, and it's, we, we went into other things. Yeah, well, we yeah, I guess it did. That was another one I don't quite remember very well. I, I think I remember more from Nathan's interview, which is in the second half of it, talking about Pandora's Box. Oh, yeah, that's true, which we should probably throw in his yeah, interview it's... here. So we have a we have a little thing from Nathan, Martian. So here he is are. with an, a little announcement. Hi, this is Nathan Marchand. I was on the Derail Trains of Thought podcast about a year ago promoting my new novel, Pandora's Box. Nick was kind enough to invite me back on to share a few updates about the book. In case you haven't heard, Nick, Natasha, and our friend Keith have published a short story collection entitled The Day After. The story I contributed to that collection is called Suicide Soldier, and it takes place within the world of Pandora's Box. One of the things I did in the book is... There is a virus that is used as a bioweapon by the villainous dictator in the story. It's never explained how exactly the virus was released, how it was created, how it was spread. But this story delves into it because I, as the writer, have always known how it worked. The story, uh, oddly enough, takes place in Pandora's hometown of Sanctuary, Illinois. It's a fictional city. And the, the main character of the story is a girl named Marana, who is acting as a carrier for the disease. She is sent by the New Order to, to smuggle the disease in, acting as a tourist. And she ends up, by happenstance, in Pandora's hometown. And there she meets her family. 
So you get to see several characters who only make small appearances within the novel. And while she's there, she slowly starts to believe that what she is doing is wrong, but is it too late for her to seek redemption because events have already been set in motion and cannot be reversed? The, she cannot stop the virus from manifesting itself and spreading throughout not only the city, but eventually into the rest of the country because she is one of many of these suicide soldiers who is spreading it. So, if you're interested in reading what I hope is a redemptive tragedy in a science fiction setting, you'll probably get into this story. Now, the big announcement I have, and I'm going to be living dangerously doing this, but I've decided, you know what, if there's any place I'm going to do this, it should be on this podcast. So, for those of you who have, uh, haven't read my book, as River Song is fond of saying in the new Doctor Who, spoilers! But I'm making it official here. I am writing a sequel to Pandora's Box. I never thought I would do this. I blame Nick a little bit for making it happen. But I'm going to write a sequel. I have a title for it uh, uh, right now. It will be entitled Hope's War and will focus on Pandora's daughter, who you meet in the epilogue of the novel. And it is revealed in that epilogue that she carries within her blood the cure for the Fury virus, which has been running rampant since the end of the Long War that was chronicled in much of Pandora's box. You also see the return of her guardian, Mordecai. As I envision the story right now, it will focus on her escaping his homestead and looking for any scientist or doctor who can help harvest the cure from her blood and make a cure out of it. Meanwhile, she will be dodging other Morlocks, other infected people who have spread out all over the place and most likely will be also be running into terrorist cells that are the leftovers from the Overlord's New Order. I'm planning on perhaps using a few characters from the previous book, if I can. I'm also hoping to have a good chunk of it take place in a few settings that are not used very much in the book, such as the Lunar Colonies. I'm hoping that the climax of the story will take place there. So, it should be very exciting. I don't know when I'm going to have this finished, once I'm done editing my fantasy comedy book, this will be the next story I start writing. It will be my next big project. So, keep your eyes out for that, and I'm sure once it's finished and on the verge of being published, you will hear about it here on Derailed Trains of Thought. Thank you very much. All right. That was Nathan. That was Nathan. Um, which should be pretty exciting, and I, I, yeah. I look forward to having phone calls with Brainstorm. I love Brainstorm with other writers. Yeah. One of these days when you do a story school on community, mm. yeah, that'd be a good one. Definitely. Oh, one other thing, I, random thing I saw this week about the boredom, that episode was about time management, but also like how to get, cre get creative in your little bits of time you have. And I read this little article, I found a link on Twitter, and it was talking about the anchor of certainty. What it was saying was, creation... And art is very uncertain. It's, you know, you don't know what you're going to write and you're making stuff out of nothing. And that a lot of the great artists have a routine or even a ritual every day so that the rest of the day is certain so that it frees their mind more for the creative part. Hmm. Which I thought was an interesting, I can see that working. They, they mentioned what some dancer who had like, like the same routine every day or this writer who went to this coffee shop and got his thing and got the pencil. You know, that by setting up a routine, you prepare yourself every day for this section of your day where you don't know what's going to happen. That makes a lot of sense. And that, 
I could see that being very helpful for, well, for kind of what I want to be doing nowadays. As far as like planning lessons for my class, I teach media in society. I don't know if I actually said what class I'm doing. Um, <laughs> and doing stuff with the Taylor Trilogy and doing stuff for other projects, for this podcast. Yeah. Like there's a lot to juggle and I'm always trying to figure out how can I manage this into a routine. So that makes, that sounds very appealing to me right now. And that's something I'm thinking about because I'm going to have my second kid here in the month. And uh, there's other things I would like to write and I don't currently, and having, I had the kind of a routine during the summer, but when school started up again, so I got grading and, and all, every day seems to be different because some days I'm working, some days we go visit people, some days I have you. It's, uh-huh. so having some sort of set, here's what I do right before I write, even if it's different times every day, mm-hmm. might be a nice thing. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. We're almost there, Tim. Yeah, we're getting there. Okay, episode two, The Pen in the Pocket. This discussion on commercialism versus artistic vision, I think we referred back to a lot. Yes. I think it is pretty fundamental, so I'm glad we did it as a second episode. Now, do you think, I was just thinking about this, do you think for a lot of writers, the having, the, the commercialism or the drive to make the money is what makes them succeed? I mean, like a lot of the, like you hear about stories like Dostoevsky was dirt poor and he was writing the idiot, you know, just to pay the rent, or Jack London did the kind of the same thing. That uh-huh. that genius is born out of the pressures of being marketable. Sometimes, I don't know. Yeah, sometimes that's a that's a very interesting question. I I guess I would say yes and no. And for whatever reason, the example that just sprang to mind was the brothers Chaps with Homestar Runner. I'm not sure why, but they first started developing these little cartoons just really for fun. I think it was just a you know, hobby try, trying to come up with something kind of cool. And it kind of took on a life of its own. Now, once it had taken on a life of its own, then they were constantly trying to kind of push themselves. And they're coming up with crazier and new ideas yeah. to, you know, maintain the audience they, they had built. And I wonder if audience, whether having readership or type popularity is enough of a replacement for monetary awards for a lot of people. That's possible. I mean, that's kind of why we do this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've been very encouraged, and I do thank everyone who's who said something nice about our podcast. It's always a great encouragement. We want this not to be just us talking to ourselves, which I mean, we enjoy doing that too. But we really love the idea that we can, in some way, help you all on your long on your artistic endeavors and uh, the way you think about you know each of these things. It's a, it's a real privilege. Yeah, the art needs to be done for other people. I mean, you need to write in case in the, such a way that no one has to read it, but it's really not worth. I mean, it needs to be seen. Yeah, it needs to be read. It needs to be experienced. It's a communal sort of. Although you you have always had that thing about uh, what's the purpose of a desert rose. Well, and and I mean there is a purpose without it. Yeah. But we should have that kind of discussion someday, like mission statements or something about why you. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. And then finally is episode one. Yes, episode one. The first one. Incidentally, yeah, these episodes one and two were the ones where I was recording in a room that uh, I thought would be acoustically good, but wasn't um, <laughs> so uh nick sounds about as good as he always has because he was recording pretty much the same way we he are now a handsome devil yeah <laughs> but no no we have come a long way in terms of of editing pacey actually we did we also rambled a lot more in these earlier episodes than we do now especially in this first one yes <laughs> i i think this episode might take the cake though it probably yeah it probably does so before the end tim uh-huh let's get our last expert testimony Oh, yeah, we forgot one. Oh, sort of. Well, now we haven't forgotten. <laughs> but before we end, let's let's throw this in so then you and me can end. 
Okay. Yeah. So Brian Churchill, who's been wonderful, he's been on yes. what like six times. Uh, well, let's see. What have we? What all have we done? We've done best years of our lives. Well, I really need to watch. Still, yeah, I do too. Uh, Double Indemnity, mm -hmm. Notorious. Mm -hmm. Which, incidentally, I talked about Notorious with my class recently. So, thank you, Brian. It it's was a very fabulous helpful. movie. If you haven't seen it, go yeah, see it. Go see it. Um, Neverending Story. The Searchers. The Searchers. And the most recent one, Metropolis. Metropolis. That's five. Five? Wait, no. We have <laughs> Best Days of Our Lives. Yeah. Notorious. Double Indemnity. Searchers. Neverending Story. Metropolis. Oh, Metropolis. Yeah. That's I think six. it is okay. six. Okay. But he's been a wonderful addition to... Yeah, he, uh, he he brings in much more academic research than we actually usually put into it ourselves. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it introduced me to a good number of movies I always want to see, but not have an excuse to. Uh, yeah, I'm very much the same way a lot of times. There are movies that you want to have, say you have seen, but unless there's some reason for it. Like, it was very helpful before I went to film school and we had that little film group. And we would get together and we would watch, uh, we watched Citizen Kane, we watched Dr. Strangelove, all these classic movies. We, we liked most of them, except for maybe Annie Hall. Um, I don't think any of us really cared. <laughs> it was pretty. I, I I thought it was an interest. I'm glad to have watched it. Yeah. Oh, no, I am too. It was just... A Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah. Oh, Which, actually, I, that was one I, I was. I thought we could have talked about in tragedy. Oh, yeah. Because that, that's... An, that's a fabulous idea. Because the interesting thing about that one is it says, he says off right at the beginning, this was the day I died. And my mom pointed out, she actually really appreciated knowing, you know, at the outset, that was what was going to happen rather than, you know, you wait through all this time and then and it's horribly and then it's horribly depressing because he died. At least you, you know, you're set up for that and you it, it, it creates a mindset from the start. If you haven't had a chance to, you need to watch Graveyard of the Fireflies. Just Grave of the Fireflies. Grave, sorry. Grave of the Fireflies. It's a animation from Japan, Studio mm -hmm. Ghibli. About two kids dealing with the Japanese bombing. During during World War Two, yeah, Hiroshima um, and all that. Really powerful stuff. If you ever have those people who say, "Oh, animations for a kid," make them watch this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 pretty heavy stuff. Um, oh, but here's Brian. Oh yeah, we're out. <laughs> we're gonna be introducing Brian. <laughs> Yay! All right, here he is, folks. This is Brian Churchill of Cinema Selections under Rail Trains of Thought. The mission of Cinema Selections is classic film entertainment and appreciation. Films are moving pictures. A great film is art. These films are timeless works of cinematic art. Part of the greatness of these films is that they have such great stories that they transcend all media. I will make the case that the films in Cinema Selections are cinematic landmarks. The films in Cinema Selections are perfect displays of talent. Growing to recognize and appreciate that talent improves you as a movie viewer. You learn to recognize what makes a great movie. In choosing the variety of films for Cinema Selections, I had to strike a delicate balance by choosing films that are popular and critically acclaimed, but not films that are too overplayed. I also concentrated on choosing films made by a variety of great directors and including as many great directors as possible. Other particular elements I consider include the quality of the story and the screenplay, the critical acclaim it received, the rating it received from regular movie viewers and the public, and its level of presence on important lists of great films. I like turning on the subtitles and reading a script during a film. All of the films for cinema selections have very well written and polished screenplays. 
These are complex films that have depth. Even if they don't initially look deep, I'll make the argument that they are. These films have many layers of meaning under what may look like a simple story. It may even take an additional viewing in order to understand and take in all that these cinematic gems have to offer. I know that I did. I hope that lending my somewhat experienced eye will enrich and cultivate an intense appreciation for the classic cinematic experience. And now, a review of the films I've selected so far. The Best Years of Our Lives, 1946, directed by William Wyler, starring Frederick March, Dana Andrews, Harold Russell, Myrna Loy, and Teresa Wright. A story of returning World War II veterans and the challenges they faced, the entire post-World War II experience is brought to life in a monumental classic filmed in the style of French realism. Double Indemnity, 1944, directed by Billy Wilder, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. The essence of classic film noir, this slick, masterfully executed, and confident movie is a perfect introduction to classic film. Notorious, 1946, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Ingrid Bergman, Cary Grant, and Claude Rains. One of Hitchcock's finest achievements, this is an excellent film to learn about the way he made his pictures, and how he uniquely blended two schools of film, German Expressionism and Russian Constructivism. The Searchers, 1956, directed by John Ford, starring John Wayne, Jeffrey Hunter, Vera Miles, Ward Bond, and Hank Warden. A towering example of Ford's cinematic genius, this deep, dark, much-imitated masterwork is an intense journey into how great westerns can be. The Neverending Story, 1984, directed by Wolfgang Peterson, starring Barry Oliver and Noah Hathaway. This surprisingly deep and emotional German 80s fantasy film carries German Expressionism all the way into the 1980s, taking the audience to the edge of the human experience. Metropolis, 1927, directed by Fritz Lang, starring Gustav Froelich, Brigitte Helm, and Alfred Abel. The crown jewel of the German silent film era, this futuristic tale set in a capitalist dystopia depicting the clash of the workers and elites gives us better understanding of the world we live in today. If you have seen any of the films I have recommended in cinema selections, please let us know what you thought. The site is derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com All of these titles are available on DVD or Blu-ray. The Searchers is on Turner Classic Movies on Tuesday, November 8th at 12.15am Eastern and on Friday, December 30th at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern. Until next time, I'm Brian Scherchel on Derailed Trains of Thought, hosted by Nick Hayden and Tim Deal. Thank you for listening to Cinema Selections. Now you know why we picked the movies we picked. Yep. And finally, beginning, we're ending at the end, Tim. Yep. I don't know that I have anything actually to add to our discussion at the end. I'm sure I could come up with something. Well, it's it's been a it's been a really interesting year.
you know, we started this podcast mainly just because you know, I was at film school and we had communicated for while um, while Lost was on. It's just a way to you know keep keep in contact. But after Lost had gotten off the air, then like that following summer, we realized we hadn't really kept in touch at all. And so, in a sense, the pod- starting podcast was just a way for us to to you know an excuse for us to get together online and and, and, discuss, and discuss things that we really enjoy discussing. Uh-huh. And we knew that some people should would enjoy it too. At yeah. least. And I think we've got to more, more, more focus, like you said, a little more professional. Mm-hmm. And we hope to continue doing that someday. Hopefully, we'll actually have our own microphones. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> and we'll, we'll hopefully in the next couple episodes try some new stuff. Maybe add some new new segments we haven't done before. Yeah, it's we've we've been doing this a year. It's time to shake things up a little bit, but not too much. Not too much because don't break what don't break does what's not fixed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll fix what's not broken. Yeah. It's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Another thing I learned on the podcast, improv is not my strong suit. <laughs> but editing can work wonders. Editing can work wonders. It's true. But with that whirlwind of stuff, and I still think that at some point we may have to um, implement a, oh, and one more thing segment, because <laughs> I know that there was something I wanted to say about the how to read a story conversation, but it just is not coming to mind. So we'll see. Or maybe we'll save it for episode... 40. 40. Wow. <laughs> We're getting up there. Yeah. Well, over the hill. Our podcast has been much more regular since I've gotten back. That's so true. Film school really slowed us down for like a semester. He was trying to learn stuff. Yeah. And I don't know what that was about. So, Tim, go ahead and introduce your uh, soundtrack. Okay. And we'll give, maybe we'll even give people a break this time and not talk about contact info. Okay. No contact info. Don't get a hold of us. Yeah. Because you never do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. All right. Anyway. Kind of. <laughs> um, we love you. The soundtrack today, man, really be. Soundtrack today is from Final Fantasy VI, one of my old standbys. <laughs> you can't go wrong with Final Fantasy VI. No, it's it's true. And wanted to go out with something that was just really epic and really, you know, looking forward to the future of the rail trains as we continue to fight the good fights. And so this is a remix of the what's the name of the machine? Oh, Atma Weapon? The Atma Weapons uh, song. And it's called Seized with Fury, remixed by House the Great. And it's just really crazy, epic rock. Damn, look at this here. (laughs) No! (laughs) Or rather, yes. That's the write up by the one and only DJ Prince. Yeah. Kind of funny how these things come back around, isn't it? Yes, it is. All right. So, we're on full circle, so adios. Oh, aloha. Farewell. But aloha means hello and goodbye. I'm full circle. Anyway, this is Nick. And this is Tim. And this is Nick. <laughs> and this is still Tim. I'm sorry, I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Adios. Bye.
coming up soon on your favorite storytelling podcast. We now have for sale on iTunes a number of original one-hour podcasts. Never before heard, only available on iTunes for two bucks each. Or you can get all of them for $1.99. Thrill as you listen to Puppies and Pros, How to Make Your Audience Weep. Zombies, Collectivism, and You. Rage Against the Mocking Meme. Lost, How Writers Steal Your Dreams. Technocracy and the Future of Film. Explosions, Why Are They So Awesome? The Comma, A History. The Secret Arts of the Clip Show. Toilet Talk. Going to the bathroom in fiction. Character fashion choice with special guest David Bowie. I have a fever, and the only prescription is more Nicholas Nickleby. The real reason we use aliases. How to swear like a sailor and get literary points. Covering the Frog for President 2012, representing the Green Party. What if Hitchcock directs Manos the Handbook? What if Michael Bay directs Citizen King? These and more available on iTunes. Stay tuned for your local broadcasting.